Good afternoon, Value Hive listeners. This is your host, Brandon. We are on episode 15 of the Value Hive podcast. And just a quick housekeeping note. That's not really housekeeping notes, more like patting ourselves on the back here. Our episode with Cliff Sosen recently passed 1,000 views, which is the first episode that's passed 1,000 views, so I just wanted to say thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, our audience is growing. Uh, we're still small, but we're a deep value investment, and I like the path that we're on. Today, I've got a really cool guest. Um, I found him after doing some munging around Twitter Going down the rabbit hole on private equity, on small business acquisitions, I listened to uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's interview with Chenmark Capital and the folks over there, which led me to Nick uh, Hoshka, who is the um, founder of Cub Investments. And Cub Investments, basically what they do is they acquire small businesses undergoing a generational transition of ownership. They nurture and grow their companies forever, creating a bright future for the business and employees while helping cement a legacy for retiring owners. Their focus at Cub Investments is healthy and small but profitable businesses in fast-growing segments of stable, recession-resistant industries. Nick also got his start really in the small business acquisition world via his ownership of the Wright Gardener. And the Wright Gardener goes back to 1973. The company was founded to pursue the belief that live plants in the workplace help relieve employee stress by reducing airborne toxins and providing a healthful, greenful backdrop for everyday activity. We're going to get into all of Nick's ideas, why he bought the Wright Gardener, why he's founding Cub Investments and what he's doing there. So Nick, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I hope that intro kind of did you justice because you've done so much throughout your career, whether it's in investing and technology and all this stuff. So one of the things that I think might be difficult for you, or maybe it's not that difficult, but when you're at parties, how do you describe what you do to others? Yeah, um, it's a little bit hard for me to put my finger on myself, I guess. Um, Yeah, right now, um, I guess it depends a little bit on who the audience is and what they're, if, if if it's, you know, business school or more of a business audience, I think of myself as, as an investor, uh, first and, um, and, you know, with a thesis around small business, generational succession and sort of the revitalization of the main street, the more of the main street type business, um, and the opportunity space created by the demographics of our, of our country. Um, but depending, yeah, if, if there's just a short conversation in order, it's I'm the owner at the Wright Gardener, uh, which is an office plant company in the in Northern California. So cool. Now take us through your history. Where did you Where did you go to school? What did you study there? Was Was business and entrepreneurship always on the forefront of your mind, or did you kind of back into this later in life? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it probably goes. My business career, I guess, goes. I've had a job since I was about nine years old. Uh, delivering papers and always been, you know, I've always had at least one job and probably ever since then. And um, in high school, I worked at a residential real estate office um, and parlayed that into becoming an agent assistant uh, where I was uh, essentially helping with the office for one of the high performing agent teams in in Minneapolis. Um, Had some small entrepreneurial ventures there. Um, and then uh, ended up going to MIT uh, for undergrad, um, started in engineering, but decided to study business uh, there. 
and was involved in the entrepreneurship club there when was really enamored by high tech and software and the application of technology um, and was involved in a couple of different things uh, while at MIT. Um, but then I ended up taking the trodden path of management consulting um, and joining McKinsey after graduation um, to really sort of boot camp my way into a more professional um, seeing how really, really big businesses work. And uh, I did the analyst program there. And um, after two years, they kind of give you a, a, a gentle and encouraging foot out the door um, or <laughs> Uh, and, and that's essentially what I got. And, uh, and basically the offer to come back at some point in the future, if, uh, and usually with after grad school, cause they really prefer to hire people or bring people up out of grad school. So, um, I basically had this kind of free ticket to do something and, um, and without a lot of, without a lot of risk, at least without a lot of career risk. And I went back to one of my buddies from MIT and was like, let's start something. And we didn't really have any grand ideas, but we just, we knew we wanted to start something. And uh, so it was truly like a blue sky. Where is there opportunity? Where is there something that we could do? And we just started interviewing people and trying to figure And we were both passionate about energy and clean tech. And so we ended up starting this company called 532 Solar. Uh, admittedly a terrible name, uh, but that was the address that our common thread was, that was the address that we lived at in college. And, um, and we sort of hustled our way to raising a little bit of money, um, to getting a little portfolio put together of solar development deals. So we were looking to build solar arrays and, um, and that was sort of the beginning of my entrepreneurial career, I guess, was, was that venture. Um, we ended up selling it after a little under a year. Uh, the timing was fortuitous and we got an opportunity to join one of our commercial partners who was also um, the executive team there was really kind of mentoring us along the way. Um, and uh, and so it was an early exit and the business probably didn't, we, we didn't give it enough enough time to really be what it could have been, but the opportunity to exit was uh, was a, a encouraging one, and um, and and actually ended up working out great. So, yeah. So what what at McKenzie did you learn that maybe helped you start Five Thirty Two Solar? Because it sounds like you were kind of just straight out of you know straight out of MIT, straight out of McKenzie Corp, and now you're just saying you know what, let's find something to do and let's let's do this thing. Um, yeah. You know, was there was there any strategies, any lessons you learned while at McKenzie or while at MIT that kind of set you up in a better position than someone that maybe didn't go to, you know, McKinsey, didn't have that consulting training? I think one thing at McKinsey you learn is to is how to learn really fast um, because you're constantly being shifted around from project to project. Usually, you know nothing at the beginning, and your job in the first week to two weeks is to get as smart as you can, as fast as you can, and just build credibility um, because those engagements they sell don't come cheap and uh, they want to put people in there who at least can confidently and credibly communicate with the, with the client on the other side of the table. And mm -hmm. so we, um, that was, I think the key thing there. And then just the, the just the comfort with the ambiguity because a lot of the problems they're hired to solve are very ambiguous or right. very complex and dynamic and you kind of get thrown in 
Um, and you just got to figure out your way through and that involves, you have to be pretty resourceful. You have to figure, figure out how, what, what is the problem that we've been hired to solve? Is it what they think it is? Uh, and then really flesh that out. And, uh, and, and McKinsey was a great learning ground to get exposure to a lot of different things to really just mature as a business person, because right. most of the people coming in there are super green. Yeah. And uh, basic skills of just doing meetings and interviews and, um, you know, all the things that somebody who has really only ever been in an academic setting um, needs to develop and hone. Uh, you get there. Yeah. And it's actually, it's actually, you know, interesting that you bring that up because this isn't something that we necessarily had in the, had in the outline here of things I wanted to cover. But I think it's interesting to pull at this thread of academia and we'll call it we'll call it academia to paint a broad brush but college and really in particular is it do you do you think it does enough to set up students uh, future graduates for real world business and you talk about these soft skills communication how to conduct yourself in a meeting and now that you have had a chance to go from analyst at McKinsey to then founder of a business and now in your role, you're buying businesses and dealing with employees and stuff like that. Do you think that school and college and academia do a good job of helping students get to where they need to be in terms of knowing how to conduct themselves in meetings and communication? I'm not, you know, I, for me, it was the extracurriculars that I got that out of. Um, so being in that place, being, in and around the entrepreneurship world, having the internships. So for me, I got it out of the, the structure that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody pursues the extracurricular pathways that I pursued. And I suspect if I hadn't pursued that, I would have felt uh, deficient. I wouldn't have been quite as ready yeah. to dive into that stuff. Um, just of, out of the coursework the problem sets, Hmm. the midterms, it teaches you to work. It teaches you to study, teaches you to think. Um, but I think there definitely is some that you got to pursue yourself and it's not necessarily handed to you in the college experience, or at least not the, in the college experience that I got. Right. So after five 32, you sold the company, uh, you spent some time at, uh, at a firm called Amonix Inc. You were a senior associate there, but yep. you actually you actually went back to McKinsey, uh, which is kind of what you were talking about earlier, is where they kind of kick you out, but they say, hey, you can always come back. What did you what did you do this time around as a as a senior associate at McKinsey? Um, and kind of how was your experience there? Yeah, so my second time around at McKinsey, I actually had some real experience um, as an associate. Uh, and you know, I had started a business, I had sold a business, I had worked at what was a much more professional business in Amonex, uh, was a Kleiner backed, uh, clean tech startup that acquired 532. And, um, and so I focused my attention the second time, second go around at McKinsey in the clean tech space and was doing engagements in energy and utilities. And at that point I actually had some experience, um, that I could bring to bear uh, to those client engagements. And, um, so I served more as a domain expert expert in some, in some aspects of McKinsey's engagements in new energy ventures, clean technology, 
um, energy efficiency, even even the transformation of the electric utilities, grid modernization, and things like that. So um, I knew how to work in McKinsey from my analyst time, and I knew I had a lot more like real experience that I could leverage um, in business the second time around. Mm. And uh, so it was a lot more comfortable, I think, being being in the McKinsey environment um, yeah. the second time around. Yeah. And a common theme that I'm hearing throughout this is, is tech, technology, energy, clean energy. This actually catapulted you, um, I don't know, you know, purposefully or not, but you kind of leveraged, I guess, this passion for energy and tech into um, a role at NRG Energy. And during your time there, you managed, um, you kind of dealt with these high-tech, high-risk ventures um, in clean tech. And so, you know, I have a a couple questions there. So first, you know, why why were you drawn to this clean tech space? And second, um, you know, what did you like or not like about this high tech space looking from a management perspective because it's so fast moving? Yeah. So, um, I, I think was and am passionate about the sort of the environmental business opportunity. Um, not just as a business opportunity, but as a, as a platform for societal, much needed societal change, that being, you know, climate change and our energy system and our aging infrastructure, um, something about it resonated with me. I think there's, I love the complexity of it. And in high tech, it has some of the features of high tech in that, you know, fast changing technology and complex engineering type of problems. Um, But it also has some more, to me, more interesting and more um, kind of difficult uh, problems around social and, uh, political and regulatory and even historical uh, issues to grapple with. And so there's just so many angles in the clean tech world and energy world um, that you really need to understand to, to do a good job navigating in that environment and formulating business, you know, business strategy that can, that can be successful. Hmm. Yeah. Um, when I, when I think of, when I think of clean tech, uh, a theme that pops into my head, and maybe maybe this is just um, you know be- recency bias here, because I was reading Bain and Company's Private Equity 2020 report, and one of the things in there they talked about the rise in ESG investments, um, and mm-hmm. you know just how millennials in general, this 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 younger group of investors, it means more to them that companies are clean, sustainable, and have a path towards whether you know you call it net zero carbon emissions, any of that. What role do you think tech and clean energy play? And do you do you do you have any thoughts on ESG investing in particular? Because I know it's a very polarizing topic. Um, there's one camp that says it's just you know virtue signal uh, virtue signaling and it doesn't really add returns, and then there's another camp that says, well, this is a good thing for society to do. Where do you where do you fall in that spectrum? Man, I've been grappling with this question for probably. 10 years. Um, and I don't think I have an answer, unfortunately. <laughs> um, because I think, I think there's space for both to be right. Um, to me, they don't, they're not necessarily diametrically opposed or binary, or it's not a true dichotomy. Um, and I don't think we'll ever know. Um, what I do think though, is that the leaders of you know, the next generation of business, uh, 
Um, and, and what I do hope is that they take that role seriously and that they consider, you know, the impact that their business has on the environment and the impact that their business has on the society. Um, in addition to the overall health of the business and, and the, the employees and the communities they serve. Um, because it would be, it would be sort of sad if, uh, there's such opportunity to do that and business Mm -hmm. can be such a great and, and powerful platform for, for doing good and, and serving people well. And, um, and it doesn't need to just be about making investors as much money as possible. It's almost thinking of in the framework of like capitalism, as you as you want to refer to it. Capitalism is this quote unquote superpower, and it's 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 what you do with your power that can you know enable the most change. Whether you you know basically if you if you alter the incentives of companies, um, not even in like a huge way, but just maybe alter them in the sense of like this ESG movement, you could have a much more profound impact than say like legislature or any other type of, 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 of movement to initiate change. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think like, especially for, and this will get into, you know, some of the motivations behind why I am doing what I'm doing now and where I'm at on that. But like, uh, if you're in the, if you're in the money management business, you know, your metric is money and your success is, is, is pretty measurable and judged, judged by money. Um, but your professional, you, you you know, you yourself as a professional, that's, that's not the entirety of you. Right. right? And the impact, right. And the impact that you have. And if you want to live a happy life, I think, uh, you're going to find that the, there's more to it than money. And mm-hmm. if you can't integrate that into your professional practice, um, you know, you may have a very successful career by any objective standard that is evaluating you, evaluating your career, but your career is not you. Mm. Yeah. Well said, well said. And, you know, on that, on that note, I do, I do want to shift because now we're at a point kind of, if we, if we timeline your professional life here, we're at this point now where you decide, you know, whether it's audible or just kind of in your head, you decide, Hey, I want to own a local small business. And, so take us through that time. Like at what point did you decide that? And what, what kind of gave you that, that final inkling? Like, okay, I'm actually going to do this. Yeah. So after a few years, so I did McKinsey a second time and then I went into like high tech venturing and at NRG. And then I ended up joining a high tech venture and it was a, um, an electric mobility venture, um, that didn't make it. And so the fact that I was leaving that was decided for me. Um, and me and a partner there, uh, one of our, one of the other executives there got together and it was at a point in my life where I had a one year old, uh, and a second kid on the way. And, um, I had been following, I had diverted from the trodden path once and it turned out fine and it was a little bit scary, but I had that insurance policy in my back pocket. So it wasn't really that risky. Um, but what that did is it gave me the confidence that I don't need to follow the trodden path. What I need to follow is I wanted to, what is the life that I want? And, and, and some of that was, you know, with the growing family, 
I wanted to sort of define myself outside of my own career and then let my career carve my career into my life as opposed to trying to make my career define my life. Hmm. And, um, and 532 gave me the confidence that I would be able to make that work. And, um, even if I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. So, so, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so, so essentially I got together with, uh, Anu Sharma, who's my, uh, who's the CFO at, at the previous business. And we were both at a similar phase of life. Um, you know, we had done okay. We had had, uh, pretty, uh, common career paths for people, college, consulting, some startups for people in the Bay Area, I guess. And, uh, and we got together and we were like, let's do something different and let's do it our way. Hmm. And we started with a completely blue sky, like with the idea that, hey, maybe, maybe we can come up with a way. It seems like it would be nice to be an investor. You know, we were always pitching, we were out pitching investors for the last three months and like, right. man, that job seems kind of interesting because <laughs> they just study stuff and then they do stuff. And that sounds like it could be delightful, especially if I could be home by four o'clock. Right. And, um, and so we're like, well, let's come up with a way to do that. But, and then we look in our bank accounts and we're like, oh man, we don't have any money. Um, <laughs> uh, what are we going to invest? <laughs> and so we kind of came up with, well, we scrapped together what we could and we're like, well, we still don't have very much money. Um, but we don't really want to be out fundraising and what can we buy with mm. this amount of money? Right. And we started looking really blue sky into investment strategies, public markets, real estate, you name it. And, um, and one thing we realized was that in the bottom of the market, sort of below the private equity radar, and this was after, I mean, this didn't come right away, but um, after looking at lots of different asset classes and categories and ideas and strategies, we realized that businesses that were basically generating enough income for their owner to live are very, very cheap. Yeah. And And on the order of like, two to three years of earnings. Right. Meanwhile, the scale at which you can run a business um, or the scalability of small local businesses has grown exponentially as these new tool sets have been, have been introduced. Like the small and medium sized business segment is very well served by software Mm -hmm. that makes the task of running a small business so much easier if you're willing to undergo sort of the modernization, the, you know, turning, doing business process and do all the work that a lot of the work that I did at McKinsey is what is the process? How do we make it run better? Where is it inefficient? Where does it break? Hmm. If you're willing to do that work on a small business, you can create something that can run at 10 times the size in a pretty short period. Um, and then it's the hard work of getting all those clients to fill up that, that capacity that you've created. Yeah. And I definitely want to dive into a couple, th- a couple things that you mentioned there, but before getting there, 
some questions I originally had because it sounds, you know, you're kind of repeating what you did at 532 where you just essentially said, you know what, let's open up the playbook. We have no biases towards any industry. We don't really know exactly what we want, but we're just going to see where there's need. Did you have at least some idea of maybe the characteristics of businesses that you liked, not necessarily the industry, but things that you liked that, um, you know, you qualified as a good business. And then the inverse of that, um, if you, if you could is, is, did you know what you wanted to avoid? Yeah. So, um, a lot of this I probably discovered after the fact, but were things that we went, we cut straight to the chase and figured out, well, where do you find businesses that you can buy? And then we just started looking at them and discovering our criteria as we were looking at things. Um, and the way that Anu and I, we were, I think, in pretty close alignment on a, a number of things, um, one of which was we felt it would be less likely for us to screw up a business that had a lot of rec- a really strong recurring revenue profile. Mm-hmm. Um, and most businesses have some kind of recurring revenue. Um, it's actually not a lot of it, but the strength of it, the predictability of it, the, the interval on, on which it recurs, all that stuff, you kind of got to look at business by business and, and understand the nature of their specific customer base and their segment and the service that they provide. But we really felt that we would have such an easier time on a business where like we knew at the beginning of the month, a month of the month each month what the revenue was going to be. And ideally at the beginning of each year, we had a pretty good line of sight to how we were going to do that year. Right. Right. Cool. Now, you know kind of the types of businesses you want. You start scanning you know, these very cheap, we'll call it two times, two and a half times owner earnings businesses for sale. How did you find the right gardener? How long did that take? Um, and then after you found it, what was the process like of actually acquiring that business? Yeah, so um, I'll inject a couple other things that we didn't like. Yeah, um, perfect. And most of them were lifestyle related. Uh, we wanted, we didn't really want to run a storefront. Um, we didn't want strict parameters around operating hours. The last business we were both in was a 24-7 operation, which was grueling. Especially with kids. Bad things could Yeah, bad things yeah, with kids, bad things can happen at any hour of the day. And so you don't <laughs> want to pile work emergencies onto that. Um, we wanted something that would be in short delightful to own, um, something that we would be proud of. Uh, and we wanted something that wasn't going to be super stressful to own and operate and wasn't going to be, uh, customers and, you know, people mad at us all the time. Yeah. Um, yep. so, um, so those were sort of the, I think a lot of this was driven by the life, the lifestyle constraints, if you will, we set out for ourselves at the beginning of like, what was the purpose of this venture to begin with? Mm-hmm. Um, and turning those into qualifying criteria. Nice. So yeah, so then so then kind of springboard off so, that into into how you found the right gardener. Yep. So then to find the right gardener, we used, um, I used a lot of the business listing sites. Um, I think the biggest one is biz buy sell. And go on there. 
and you can search for by industry, by segment, by location, by earnings, by revenue, um, and and just started doing searches. And the process of scanning these businesses, and you go through, and you're like, you start to develop some more efficient methods of ruling stuff out by just scrolling. Um, we were geographically focused. Neither one of us really wanted to go. Neither one of us wanted to move. Um, and ideally at least one of us would have a very good commute or a very easy commute. Um, Anu and I live about 40 miles away. And, um, and so that kind of set our geographic range and that narrowed it in. Um, we had to figure out how much money, uh, how much earnings we needed to buy such that we could take leverage on the business, um, to help finance the purchase hmm. and still have some, and still have plenty left over to at least pay ourselves for working right. there. Right. Cause really we're sort of there to buy a job. Exactly. And in this market, in the small business market, that's kind of the way it is set up and the way it's priced. Um, you're basically buying a job. Um, and so, yeah, I found the right gardener. We, we had been searching for about a little over a month, maybe four or five weeks um, before the right gardener popped onto our radar. And I was meeting with brokers and things like that as well, because we still weren't sure of what the acquisition strategy is, nor were we sure how long we were committed to searching. Um, we didn't really know how long it would take and we didn't really set a timeline for ourselves. Um, we were both fortunate in that we have spouses who work and could support the family during that period. Um, but um, I think the finite resource was their patients and our patients <laughs> right. um, uh, more than anything else. And, um, and we were for- fortunate to have found this one. What I guess from talking to other people was ridiculously fast. Well, I was just about um, to say, like, I didn't, I didn't even want to interject, but you know, you said like around like less than a month. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's super fast. Like most people I hear from search funds, they spend months and months, if not like two to three years to find an idea. Yeah. And, and some of that is by, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were fishing in a pond that not that many people are fishing in it. Um, and these businesses, if you've got, if you're capitalized enough, to make a purchase and make a move, um, you're unlikely to find yourselves in a competitive situation where you're in like a bidding war. Hmm. Like you can pretty much buy uh, what you want. That's nice. Um, in this part of the market, and the bigger you get, the more likely you are to run up it, run into competition. So how did in you terms buy? Of the business you're buying. Yeah. So how did you how did you end up buying the right gardener? I know that. Um, in just in just doing some research, you mentioned an SBA loan. Can you take us through that process uh, yeah. for first time investors? Yeah. So okay. So we we found we we're scrolling through listings on on Biz Buy Sell, and then they have a they have kind of a facilitated process by which you inquire and gather more information, and that involves filling out an NDA, and um, it involves uh, usually a short financial qualification, um, which is pretty pretty lightweight. Um, it's a little bit paperwork intensive. So then you get pack a packet from the broker, um, and that will contain a bunch more information, including the identity of, of who the target is, 
um, information about their strategy, their history, what's going on there, what opportunities there might be. And this is all the, usually the broker's perspective. And then um, you can put together questions, send them to the broker, they'll send them to the owner. Sometimes they'll reply back and give you written responses. Other times they'll say, wow, this is a lot. We're just going to set up a call and you can talk through it with the owner. And then um, once you do that and you sort of, they'll prod you to say, okay, if you want to, like, we're not going to answer an unlimited number of questions just to fulfill your curiosities. Um, you need to make an offer. And at that point, you kind of just have to decide, right. am I comfortable? It's not firm. You know, there's still a due diligence step. There's, but that is a point of where you start to realize how serious you are or are not. Yeah. Um, because you're throwing out a You're essentially going on the information they've provided you and putting out a number uh, of here's what we're willing to pay for this. And they've put out a list of numbers, too. So you have a, fair, a reasonably good idea of what. Uh, what they're asking and whether what they're asking is reasonable. And once yeah. you've seen a lot of them, you can you can uh, do these kind of off the uh, on a napkin. And so we made an offer, um, and we just passed our offer to the broker and said we you know after and we had met the owner at that point, and he seemed like an amazing person to work with, a really great story, a really nice little business um, that was supporting a lot of people. And, um, and was making money and felt like it could be so much bigger and could be so much more than what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and by no fault of the owner, he was, he was running, you know, his business for, for 30 years. And he was, before that he was a kindergarten teacher. So, um, and, uh, so we got into an arrangement to, you know, he agreed to sell it to us and there was actually a competitor, um, it was another plant company um, who wanted to roll his business and basically gobble it up. Right. Um, and he was more, more comfortable with the story that we were able to ride, which was, you know, a path to some new energy and new blood to give this company a, ne- a next generation. Awesome. And, um, and so we got under, got under contract um, I think we initially inquired just to give you like the timeline. We initially inquired or saw it and inquired late October, early November, had our meetings in mid November and we had an offer agreed to around Thanksgiving. Wow. That's really, fa- <laughs> that's really fast. <laughs> and then, um, and then we did some more analysis kind of through the due diligence period, like, some account level analysis and things like that. Um, and got an SBA loan application in by I think the second week of December. Okay. And then I think everybody did nothing for several weeks. (laughs) And then, um, and then when the holidays, after the holidays, it sounds like they started to pick up paper and there wasn't that much to do at that point. It was kind of wait around. Yep. Um, because the most important work, was planning for the transition hmm. and all the people stuff um, because we felt like the process stuff, we didn't know enough to redesign the processes from the right gardener uh, before we even owned it. Right. And so we sort of just, we just punted on a, everything that we possibly could punt on that wasn't going to be essential to our success of, uh, to our success in replicating what that, what Matthew, the owner, um, had done in the years prior. 
our like number one mandate was just keep that business as together as we can. Hmm. What things, what things did you, did you do? Did you implement during that transition phase that maybe you look back on now and say, man, I wish I would have done this different or, you know, even, even going, going further just say, you know what? I think I did a really good job when it comes to transitioning old management into a new management. Did the owner stay on for like a certain amount of weeks during this transition? Yeah, we had a training period. Um, but it ended up being sort of abbreviated. He had like a vacation planned in the middle of it. And, and we just kind of rolled with it. Um, we, we handled the, the people stuff, especially with the management and the team in the core service team in advance of close. So everybody knew exactly what was going on. Everybody, we had the chance to, you know, prevent, toxic narratives from getting out like we really controlled the messaging hmm. to make sure that the the people there knew that matthew was thoughtful about the next generation of his business and the you know the sequence of events that was about to unfold in terms of transitioning the business to new ownership and and we were you know very careful and thoughtful about how people and how the how work and all the personnel and HR stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of our focus was just on just in, engagement of those individual people and, and how, um, because we needed them. We did not know this business and they did. Exactly. And so were you worried more so that they took this sell from the owner as a sign that he just didn't care about the business and he didn't care about his employees and you were just trying to control that aspect of it saying like no he still loves the business he's just turning a new chapter in his life yeah it was the latter and a big part of it was making sure that that was really understood like there's a reason he could have sold it to any number of people he could have sold it to a local competitor there's a big national company he could have sold it to. There's actually quite a bit of liquidity in the plant business um, for owners, um, but he chose not to. And I mean, above all, that was like a that was kind of a that was a story of love. Like he was doing this, um, and may, maybe this is a story I tell myself, but because he wanted to see all those people succeed. And just because he was going to retire and reprioritize his own life um, doesn't mean he didn't care about, you know, all those other people that he had hired and who had worked for him and right. um, had had done a great job for him. And he wanted to make sure that they were all taken care of. And we felt that responsibility and we kind of took that on our took that on our shoulders to fulfill that. One of the one of the big I guess not necessarily critiques of investing in these really small businesses, but I guess a people people like to say, you know, hey, you can buy these things at two times owner earnings, two and a half times owner earnings, and people like to rebuttal, well, yeah, of course, because you have to come in and you have to do all the work yourself, and you know, you have to manage it yourself and stuff like that. But you know, how important is finding what I, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to refer to as key players or key employees within an existing organization? And, you know, how, how, how important is it to find those people and then put them in roles of responsibility and, you know, like managerial levels? Because you're coming in and you're, you don't necessarily know that much about this business. 
So, you know, to me, if I'm in your shoes, my first thing is like, all right, let's find whoever's in this company that knows the most besides the owner that's leaving. Yeah. And I think there, and that's probably not the only criterion because you want to figure out, you do need to manage these things for change, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, we were not there to come and grow at 1% a year for the next 30 years. Um, and that was part of our strategy was we really can, we think we can grow this thing quite a bit. It doesn't have to be a venture. It's not a venture capital story. Um, but it is like a, a, a commitment to, you know, a, a steadier and more brisk growth plan than the company is used to. And you do need to find those people who have it in them and then inspire them and motivate them and reward them for that change. Um, and, and I think that's, that's so critical. You don't have to be alone in that business because there are people that work there and not everybody wants that, but for those that don't want it, that doesn't mean there's not a role for them. Right. Because if you're front, you know, if you're front, especially in the frontline employees. Now, if you have your sales team is, is, has those expectations, then maybe, you know, maybe that's a problem, but, um, but you do have to, you know, figure out who can really help you set a new tone and mm-hmm. a new culture, um, and orient that company toward becoming, you know, uh, becoming bigger, becoming more successful, expanding the reach. And, and, and I think a big, a big part of that story is just empowerment yeah. and respect, like respect what they, where they've been and what they've done and all that they've given the company. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're not there to say what well, you didn't do enough because the company is not bigger than it is or whatever, but it's about, okay, we're going to, to some extent unshackle you. Like what ideas do you have? We want to hear them. Yeah, creating creating that sense of entrepreneurship like within the chain of command basically. Yep, exactly. Because there's always going to be situations where maybe the last owner by no real fault of their own didn't want to do something. Uh, maybe they didn't want to be in a certain line of business or serve a certain customer or what have you. And I was pretty clear with the team, I think from the very beginning is you know, a clean slate here, all those things that you weren't, whatever, whatever those ideas were, like, I want to hear them again. Yep. We'll, we'll revisit them. Awesome. And part of, and part of this then kind of leads us to, um, so in kind of doing, doing a little bit more digging into the right gardener, and I don't know if I'm actually mistaking this for cub investments. So tell me if I'm wrong on this, but, um, have you've done about five bolt on acquisitions since buying the right gardener? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, so, so of, oh, go ahead. You know, I was I was just gonna say I'm 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 gonna give you the floor on this, but I want to preface it as, you know, what's what's the benefit of these bolt-on acquisitions in your business, and should more small business owners think about these, you know, whether it's vertical or horizontal bolt-ons as a strategy for them? Yeah. So we've done five. We actually just finished our fifth bolt on so it's six acquisitions in the plant space total all of them have looked very similar in terms of the offerings and the service that they provide um the 
for us, they've all been horizontal. So we haven't gone upstream or downstream. And that's pretty deliberate. Um, we knew that the right gardener was a little bit small. That when we acquired it, we knew that it was a little bit smaller than we would have ideally wanted for a first acquisition. But we also knew that we were operating in a fairly fragmented marketplace. And we had a an instinct that, which turned out to be probably more right than we thought, even at the time, um, that opportunities would come our way once we were swimming in it. Hmm. And uh, that's certainly been the case. And so for, for us, Boltons have a lot of synergies. And once you get that initial work done of making a company that could be more, you know, quite a bit bigger without a ton more effort, then the bolt-on work becomes very straightforward um, and it becomes very accretive and uh, to to the earnings of the business. And so long as you have the cash flow to pull it off and the financial capacity and, and flexibility to get those deals done, right. I think bolt-ons, bolt-ons can be an amazing strategy for acquiring customers. And it depends somewhat on the industry, like how, what the switching cost is, what's the, but for us in, in plants, um, very few people are going to switch over price. So it's hard to, it's hard to get customers who are happy with their service to switch. Right. Um, but you can, you can buy those accounts and then you don't have to compel people to switch by giving them a cheap price that you're going to regret later. Right. Right. Um, and and you can create a you know it's a great it can be a great story too. I right? create a soft landing for employees um, in the new company and uh, create opportunities for growth for the existing employees and the new employees um, because you're as you're growing you're you know changing your work structure and adding new roles and um, it's a, overall can be a really positive uh, way to do it. Why the um, why the why the uh, disregard or I guess disregards a poor word, but why why have you just shifted to doing horizontal integration and not pursued the vertical um, or downstream integration? Is that just because of the industry you're in or is it you know something something a little bit deeper? Yeah, I think it's for us right now it's pretty specific to the industry that we're in. So um, like upstream is nursery. Uh, key inputs to nursery are land and labor. Um, we're already very exposed to labor. We're not very exposed to land. Um, but in California, in Northern California, like talk about inputs that you are, might be frightened to have. So just in terms of the risk exposure of going upstream. Um, and we like the industry structure as it is. And we just didn't, we just don't feel like there's a, a place for us to, to play upstream. Hmm. Um, there's no diversification benefit of going upstream really. Right. Uh, and there's, uh, so yeah, we just don't, we don't particularly like the, what would be the obvious upstream. Um, and then we're direct customer serving. So I don't, I guess I'm, there's not really much that would be downstream. Um, and then we could do other service lines and leverage the customer base, like other business services, which we're open to. We just, we just haven't done it. Yeah. One um, of the, Oh, go ahead. Uh, we would just have to find ones that we like as much or more. 
Right, right. And in a in a previous podcast, you you discussed this idea of the add-on strategy. You said, quote, with the add-on, it's not quite as straightforward in the sense that if you already have an operation that runs a certain way and you're adding another operation that looks very, very similar but runs in a very different way, there's a lot more risk around that transition. And you mentioned this earlier in the fact that before you even consider these bolt-on acquisitions, you have to have the internal processes in place. And so, what are what are yep. what are some things, maybe some red flags, almost like a um, almost like a temperature gauge for your own business, where you're saying like, "Hey, guys, we're not necessarily ready to acquire a business. We got to focus on our internals." Yeah, um, uh, for me, it would be like, "Hey, if we had, I mean, an add-on is like signing. If you're adding, say, a hundred clients, it would be like if my sales team landed." a hundred signed new contracts on the desk on one day. Right. Um, how much does that stress you out? I guess it's the good limit <laughs> test. <Yeah. laughs> I like that. Um, so that's probably the best limits test. And if all facets of the business are like, no problem, we'll get it done. Uh, then you're probably ready. Uh, if it's a, oh my gosh, I don't know what we're going to do. Like if that is like incredibly stress inducing, then you're probably not in a place where you're ready to, to add on. Yeah. I'd say we did it a little bit before we were ready, mm-hmm. but we were much better organized. We did our first acquisition was six months after the initial close. Wow. Seven months. Okay. Um, and we were, I'd say reasonably ready that, that went okay. Um, Took a little bit longer than the most recent ones, which we're on. We're running about two, three days now. <laughs> um, gotcha, gotcha. Um, I wanna, I wanna shift before. I wanna, I wanna kind of di- digress a little bit into two kind of philosophical themes before um, wrapping up around Cub Investments and really getting into why you founded this. And and the two themes I wanna, I wanna discuss are. Uh, in a in a in that same previous podcast one where I quoted you about the add-on risk, you discussed mm-hmm. how you're not a huge fan of the word moats, and you kind of think, I guess, you know, tell me tell me if I'm wrong, but you basically think moats are overrated, and um, you know, with that being said, I mean, I'm staring at a Warren Buffett book here while I'm while I'm talking to you, <laughs> <laughs> so like, take us take us take us through why you think you know the whole idea of moat is just an overrated concept. So um, I'll admit my thinking here is not entirely original. Um, Dan Rasmussen has a great piece. I think it was an institutional investor pointing out the fact that the analytical framework of like Porter's five forces, for instance, um, has no empirical foundation whatsoever. Hmm. It's purely theoretical. There's no empirical confirmation that this has any validity whatsoever. Um, And so I think my unwillingness to subscribe to the uh, what I'm unwilling to subscribe to is the idea that I can look at a business, analyze the industry that it's in and come to a determination about what the longevity of that profit stream is or how durable it is or how fragile it is um, through any kind of framework based assessment, quantitative or otherwise or, or qualitative that's what I don't really believe in. Um, I, 
I'm probably more of an empiricist in that I would be more comfortable just looking at the history. And if I see yearly profits every year for 20 years, I'm pretty comfortable with it. There's something there. I don't necessarily <laughs> need to know what it is. Right. You don't have to use the five forces to tell you that this is a pretty decent business. Yep. And I, that's kind of where I stand. So uh, it's not that they don't exist, but it's that I don't think you can really dissect them in an analytical framework reliably and forecast them. Hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm more inclined to look at the, look at the empiricals and, um, and kind of get an understanding of, of what it takes. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look and, at that. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to look at that Rasmussen post, um, about, about that whole thing. Cause I actually haven't heard of that, but, uh, Okay, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to I'm going to give you a sentence and I kind of want to see if, you know, just agree or disagree with this. Um, most people want to do business in a low competitive environment. Do you agree with this? Uh yeah, I think so. Okay, do you do you, do you think that this idea of, of, of moats and competition can then intertwine where if you're in a highly competitive environment, you don't necessarily want to do, let's say it's an acquisition in a highly competitive environment. Like would, would, would you, would you not go into that investment then, or would you still entertain that idea even if it was in a high competitive zone? Um, I think there's a more important question and that is how good are those competitors? Mm. Because there are businesses that will, people will say are very, very competitive because for whatever reason, the barriers to entry are low. It's not capital intensive. Um, you know, any guy with a watering bucket can do this, (laughs) but, but they make money for the owner and anything. If you dive into it and give it the rigor, anything can become complex Hmm. and everything will become complex. Um, and it's just a matter of how far you're willing to get into it. Um, and so, yeah, my view is that the most important aspect is, is not whether or not something is competitive or not, but r- rather how difficult it is for you to basically get your, put yourself above the rest of the competition. Right. And I'm more concerned about businesses that are, uh, I'd be happy to be in a business that's very competitive if the competitors aren't very good, hmm. for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I, I definitely get that. Um, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that the types of deals you're looking at, you... Um, you know, you're fishing where others aren't. And I think this is so, this is so important because if we, if we tie this back, if we're going to tie this, this, this podcast back to how it can relate to public market investing, where, you know, I, I spend the most of my, most of my time in, you know, micro cap illiquid stocks, it goes with the same principle of fishing where others aren't and turning over rocks. Um, you know, have you noticed, increase competition for these types of deals that you're doing given where we are in the market cycle and are more firms going down the EBITDA chain to look at these smaller deals or are you still seeing plenty of opportunity and you're one of the only fishermen at the pond? Um, so we've actually, I'd say now that we are where we are and we've had some success at the bottom, 
Um, in terms of the stuff I look at, I try to stay down really low, below where any financial investor could ever be or will, will ever likely be. Um, that said, I do think the private equity world has come down market a lot. I think when we first started Blue Sky Investment you know, work in private equity, um, people were telling me $2 million. And then some time went by and then it was like one and a half million. And then I've lately been hearing 1 million and I've even been hearing 800,000. And so I do think, but this is all non-analytical. This is all like hearsay. Right. And maybe I'm, what I hear is a reflection of people actually knowing who I am and what I do. And, <laughs> and that's a fair point. And, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I don't have any analytical uh, backing for the idea that private equity has come down market. It stands to reason that it has be, by the mere fact of how much dry powder is out there. Like if they want to keep their jobs, they need to keep deploying capital. Right. And the only way to, and there's only so many, you know, two plus million dollar EBITDA businesses um, that are worthy of that, stra- of the private equity strategy. Um, so, I, I would, I'd be surprised if they were not lowering their threshold and starting to come down market. How far will they come? I I really don't know. Um, I've modeled out like what a fund strategy in the bottom of the market would look like, and there's a couple of nuts that I haven't really cracked yet. Um, and what are those? Around how do you? Uh, you have to operate your deal machine very very efficiently. And when you do that with institutional money, um, that means you're going, you can't apply the same tools that private equity uses in terms of most of them are like co- cover their butt type tools, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> Mostly lawyer, lawyering and accounting due diligence. And, and this is a messy world. I'd, I'd argue that it gets more complicated as you get smaller than it, than less, yep. or at least more, more messy, not, not necessarily more complicated but if uh if complexity is like the number of you know some of it is just the the amount of inconsistency of accounting classifications and things like that um so yeah the deals are really hard to pencil really high transaction costs relative to the amount of capital being deployed um the sba lending framework uh doesn't really work for institutional um so there has to be you need both debt and equity um, and there's, so there, yeah, there's just a lot of barriers to coming all the way down to the market. And right. I think the primary of which is the transaction costs, um, you, it needs to be a growth play. So you have to have a really convincing thesis, I think around kind of the strategy that we've executed. Um, uh, I struggle with the, I struggle with the buy cheap and then just, uh, harvest cash, and even if it doesn't grow, it'll all be okay because you bought so cheap. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know that that works at the fund level in hmm. terms of doing lots and lots and lots of those. Yeah. Um, unless you can come up with a really efficient way to portfolio manage and a really efficient way to transact. Got it. Got it. And that's actually a perfect segue because you went down this. You went down the chain, and you've got a small. Um, private fund. It's called Cub Investments, and I've got I've got two initial questions. The first one's a little bit obvious. You know, why did you why did you decide to start Cub Investments, and kind of when did you decide to do that? And then the second question is, 
why the name Cub Investments? I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. So, so Cub Investments was actually predated the Wright Gardner experience, and it was the essentially the initial idea of an of a private investment uh, going after the small business succession opportunity, and the Wright Gardner was kind of the first play there. Um, now, I sort of use the name as all of our small business investments pursuits. Um, same strategy. Um, it, we're probably not there yet in figuring out what a full on business plan for that looks like. Um, it could be do more of the same. It could be do another platform. It could be come up with other ways to pursue investment strategies around this small business main street succession, um, space. And, but I think the the common thread is like we're looking for businesses, you know, that are pretty small and in their at least uh, that are potentially have a very bright future, uh, but somebody needs to come in and grow them up. Right and now, what the, what what size? That's the cub illusion. What size are you are you talk are are you talking about in terms of? the type of deals that Cub Investments is looking at? Do you guys have like a max threshold, like 800,000 EBITDA or a million EBITDA? So I think the, I think for the strategy that we playbook, we've played so far, the right range is in the sort of 200,000 of owner earnings to about at least where we would play um, to about like 600,000 of okay. owner earnings. Got it. Um, there's no magic to that. I think that's, but that's where multiples are cheap. Mm-hmm. That's where you're going to find deals. You're in, you're basically in the, in the market to buy your own job. Yeah. Um, and our approach there currently is to find people who are a lot of them whom are searchers, entrepreneurial searchers and to help do for them what my partners did for me in the initial purchase of the right gardener, which was a little bit of a pressure valve a little bit of a confidence boost, um, strategic advisory, project support where needed, the ability to step in and, and help if things go sideways, um, and just a true partnership. Hmm. And so uh, what we're pursuing, uh, Cub Investments and the Right Gardener at the current moment have sort of become one and the same. But um, but I think a Cub, the, the Cub Investments name, we just kind of kept it around because – it's the right gardener is an operating business with products and services and staff and team and management and all that. Um, and there's this whole other aspect to the things that we're doing and thinking about are on at a more abstract level of, of the right gardener. Yeah. So it's almost more like abstract than the right gardener. Yeah, and it's almost like a quasi search fund in a sense where if you're, you know, looking at these businesses and then trying to find somebody to give, you know, to give the, the younger you when you were starting at right gardener kind of the same deal. Um, that's, yep. that's, that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so what's your, what's your long-term goal? And I know this is kind of a loaded question, so forgive me if you you know don't have an answer ready for this, but <laughs> what is your, what is your long-term goal for cub investments? Like, you know, we look decades out, um, you know, where do you, where do you want cub investments to be and what do you want it to stand for going forward? You know, I haven't, I try not to think that far out. Um, so I try to. Patrick O'Shaughnessy has got a, a piece on goalless living. Hmm. Um, 
and I was really inspired by it just around just, you know, one day at a time yeah. and enjoy, enjoy what you're doing. Um, I think the one criteria that I hope, you know, we really stick with was be proud of everything you own. Hmm. Um, don't do things you're not proud of. And I think you're unlikely to falter if you adhere to that. Um, and make sure you operate in such a way that you will be proud of everything that everything that you own. So, um, yeah, we're sort of taking it one step at a time and not trying to get over our skis and be humble uh, about our, you know, what we're doing and what we're capable of, and um, and just be good to work with and be good partners. Really, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the long term goal is to just keep taking it one day at a time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, en- and 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 enjoy the and enjoy the journey. Yeah, right. It's not just uh, so much of the so much of the investment management and money industry is just about the money. Yeah, and for us, it's it's not just about the money. It's like and, and we started out that way, and we intend to stay that way. Which like it's also about the life and the people you inspire and the people you um, promote and help be better than they were the day before. Yeah. And it's, and it's, 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 it's honestly really refreshing because it's something that you've kind of stayed true to even, even throughout just, just, just this podcast is the emphasis on creating a lifestyle. That's just, you know, holistic in the sense of, it's not all about business. It's not all about money. It's about making sure that, you know, your stress levels are in check, that you're living a life that you want to live, that you're prioritizing the things you want to prioritize. And, you know, it kind of goes back to, just even a previous guest that I've had on the show, Moses Kagan of Adaptive Realty, who does this in real estate, where he just says, you know, it's really the long-term relationships that you make with people that matter. Um, and so, you know, it's just fostering good relationships, doing good by others, like you said. Um, you know, so I just, I just, I just love the thread um, and 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 the consistency in your message. I, I just, I just think it's really refreshing. And I'm going to wrap up oh, here. Um, I'm going to wrap up here with kind of a few, a few kind of bullet bullet questions are called a lightning round. Um, what's, what's the first piece, or I guess the, the, the biggest piece of advice you would give to someone who wants to do what you do, who's starting out and says, you know, Hey Nick, um, I want to buy a business or Hey Nick, I want to start, you know, a small little acquiring fund. What advice would you give to me? I'd say before you even ask that question, you have have to decide what do you want out of life? Like I'd say you start where we started, which was like, what's important to you? Um, and decide who do you want to be? You know, it's sort of like the, and I mean, I mean that like in a very like deep and personal way. Um, not write, not write your conference intro, your conference speaker intro, like write your eulogy. Yeah. I like that. And, and figure out where that takes you. Because if you don't figure that out, you're going to have a really hard time sticking to making sure that you end up on a path that you really, truly want to be on. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And so the second question here, um, if you had to invest in only one industry or sector, and I know, you know, you may hate this question because this, this is never going to happen. <laughs> but if you, if you had to only choose one, what would it be and why? Yeah. Um, so I knew about this question. Um, I was thinking about it and the one I was able to 
come up with was insurance. And I know a lot of people think that's stodgy and boring. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of a math geek. Um, and insurance sits at the intersection of you know statistics and probability and behavioral economics and and it, there's like this there's so many different crevices and interesting aspects to insurance because it serves basically every industry and so maybe that's a cop out way of saying I want to I want the ability to explore anything and everything yeah and I'm going to do that through through insurance because at least then I get to do math. I mean, you're telling me an MIT grad is a fan of math. I think <laughs> breaking breaking news over here. But I mean, no. I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking at the Buffett book again. I mean, Buffett built. I mean, just the insurance business is so lucrative, and uh, you know, you've got you've got all these cool businesses now. Okay, so speaking of insurance, and this isn't even on the on the outline, but um, you know, what are your thoughts on the pet insurance business, and specifically, you know, like Trupanion and companies trying to get into the pet insurance space? Do you have any thoughts there? You know, I haven't really looked at it. On its face, it sounds very interesting, and it sounds like something people would do. I, um, I, I guess it's a way to it's a way to uh, to create a, a a more profitable stream for the veterinary business. Mm. In my mind, yeah. it's essentially trying because anytime you have an industry where the person that's paying is different than the person who's receiving the service, there's probably going to be profits there. Yep. And they, they're probably going to be fat. Um, and it seems like, you know, to me, maybe that's just uh, a strategic ploy to, uh, to make people <laughs> care less about how much it costs to get their dog uh, surgery. Right. Um, or so maybe, maybe that's going to set us off in the direction where uh, health, pet health care costs as much as human health care. <laughs> um, which I, as as a citizen, I don't love the thought of. But, uh. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> well, cool. Um, second, second to last question here. Where where can people go to find you if they want to know whether it's about the right gardener, what you're doing there, whether it's about cub investments, or just reach out to you on Twitter? Oh, um, uh, I rarely respond. Well, I don't get too much on Twitter, um, so I would – I guess I responded to you, Brandon, on Twitter. But, yeah, hey. Um, <laughs> never say never. <laughs> link, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn a lot more than I'm on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, Nick Hoshka, uh, um, my LinkedIn page, I think it's just slash and Hoshka. Um, I spend a decent amount of time on Search Funder. Um, I do write some stuff on there too, um, which is a cool platform for more search entrepreneurs like myself. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm going to link, I'm going to link your Twitter into the show notes as well as your LinkedIn. Um, so you might have a little bit more people reaching out to you on Twitter and un- unfortunately for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now the last question, uh, which is one I ask every single guest on the show, if you had to have dinner with, or if you, you know, if you could have dinner with one person past or present, doesn't have to be finance or investing or business related, um, who would it be and why? And before you answer that, just know that Abraham Lincoln is so far the most popular answer out of the now 15 <laughs> episodes we've done. <laughs> okay. Um, so my, this, this may come from uh, recency bias, but um somebody that I've gotten back into recently was Clay Christensen's work on um, uh, how will you measure your life. And for those who haven't read it or seen the video lecture, um, it's, it's really powerful 
Uh, and I think it was formative to, I only sort of was reminded of it recently. He passed, he unfortunately passed away. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Yeah. Something, something. Um, and I realized it, it was something that really influenced me at the time I read it. And then I kind of dropped it and forgot about it, but never really forgot about the message. And, um, and I just think, uh, it would be so interesting to, to spend some time with him because he's been such an influential thinker in the business world around stuff that I'm really interested in about innovation and, and product development and, and tech. Um, but I think the more impactful and important mark, um, that he'll make is, is based on the, how will you measure your life work? Hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, I haven't, I have not read that. so, um, I think, I think it would definitely behoove me to go pick up a copy. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we kind of went over an hour, but I really appreciate you taking the time to drop some wisdom. Um, wish you the best of luck in cub investments and, uh, best of luck to the future of the right gardener. And I really think people are going to enjoy what you had to say, um, about private equity and just life and business in general and how to make that work. Thank you so much, Brandon. I'm glad I could be here.